Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is targeted towards both healthcare professionals and the general public. Today's guest is Dr. Dilawar Coker. Dr. Coker is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Medicine and the Division of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the University of Washington Medical Center in Seattle, Washington. At his institution, he established the Pediatric Allergy Clinic and serves as clinic director for the Adult Allergy Clinic. His clinical interests include drug and food allergy, as well as mast cell disorders. Dr. Coker, thank you so much for taking time to join us, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a privilege to be on the podcast. I think this is going to be a great conversation and filled with wonderful education for our listeners. But before we get into some of the details of today's topic, uh, can you just begin by offering us some background as to why an allergist who lives and works in the state of Washington has a background in alpha-gal syndrome, which predominantly affects people in the opposite corner of the United States? Well, if you believe the New York Times, alpha-gal can affect anyone anywhere. Um, but uh, I grew up in Virginia. Virginia is where uh, you know I call home even though I'm out on the West Coast now. And there I had uh, the privilege of being at the University of Virginia for seven years for medical school and residency training. Um, I started my career in allergy there, actually. I met my mentor, Dr. Larry Borish, and saw my first alpha-gal patient with him. And then I got the opportunity to work with doctors Tom Flats-Mills, Scott Cummins, Jeff Wilson, kind of all the juggernauts in the alpha-gal world, if you will. Um, And so that's kind of where my interest developed, and that's kind of followed me, where I've gone in both fellowship and now out here on the West Coast. Patients see that on my CV, and they always ask about it. (laughs) That's that's really cool. Um, No, and you you have a great background in this, and you're going to, yeah, this is going to be a great conversation. So let's start by just the basics. Can you describe the full name for AlphaGal? Because I'm not going to say it over and over again. And then tell us what it is. Galactose 1,3-alpha-galactose. AlphaGal is a lot easier to say. Um, So it's an oligosaccharide that's found in mammalian tissue, but it's absent in humans, apes, um, and old world monkeys. And so it's something that we find in a variety of animal species, but not people like us. Okay. And uh, can you define oligosaccharide for the general public who may be listening? Sure. It's a carbohydrate, um, and that's an important point. You know, in the world of allergy, we often think about reactions to proteins because that's what antibodies like to bind. Uh, and so alpha-gal is unique in that it's a carbohydrate epitope or a, a carbohydrate site that an antibody can bind to as opposed to a protein. Okay. So right off the bat, we are learning that alpha-gal is unique in many ways. Let's go back a little bit to the origin story. So you trained in sort of the hotbed, uh, sort of the birthplace of, of alpha-gal syndrome as we know it. And this, this is such a fascinating story. So I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball here, but I'll have you kind of walk us through it. What is cetuximab and why is that relevant? So cetuximab is a chimeric antibody against the EGFR receptor. It's used in the treatment of colorectal and head and neck cancers. Um, And it's partially murine, partially human, so hence chimeric. Um, And, uh, you know, what was interesting about that antibody is that 
you had a lot of patients in uh, the mid 2000s, so 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, around that time period, that were having allergic reactions on first administration, um, which is quite strange. You know, in allergy, we often think about first exposure being sensitization and then subsequent exposures causing the reaction. But you had people that were getting this on first exposure having reactions as severe as anaphylaxis. And so this uh, prompted a lot of interest in why is this happening. And what they found is, is there were regional differences in this. And so it seemed that folks in the Southeast, Mid-Atlantic region, uh, that they were having a higher percentage of reactions when you looked at the infusions and rate of reactions compared to what was seen in clinical trials. And then uh, the rest is kind of history. You know, folks eventually found that alpha-gal was present uh, in the variable region of the heavy chain of this antibody. Um, and it has to do with the mouse line that is used to produce this antibody. You have glycosylation um, of alpha-gal in that region, and that's what uh, the IgE in patients with alpha-gal syndrome can bind to, and hence cause an allergic reaction. I, I love that story because it really, it, it's unique, right? Like, as you mentioned, people are having significant allergic reactions upon first exposure to this treatment, which is pretty rare in our specialty. And then that kind of led down towards trying to figure out what was going on. So if somebody isn't exposed to cetuximab, then how do they develop alpha-gal syndrome? That's another unique aspect of, uh, you know, the alpha-gal syndrome. Some people consider this an immunoparasitologic disease as opposed to a food allergy, and we can get more into that later. Uh, but essentially, parasite exposure, most commonly the lone star tick, uh, Amyloma americanum, uh, bites from that tick is what leads to sensitization to alpha-gal. Uh, but, you know, this uh, can also occur with exposure to other parasites as well, potentially. But it's the tick bite that's thought to be the inciting sensitization event. Okay, so somebody's bitten by the tick, and we're going to talk more about clinical manifestations and things like that. Are there other ticks that can cause the same alpha-gal syndrome, or is it really just specific to this one lone star tick? So, you know, that's an excellent question, um, and there is data to support that other ticks might participate in the sensitization to alpha-gal. Uh, and this comes from a lot of excellent basic science work. They found uh, alpha-gal and tick salivary glands um, from different tick species in the gastrointestinal tract of different tick species. And of course, one of the other big things is we think of this as a American condition, you can say, given that so much of it has been discovered and described here in the U.S. But it can happen in uh, the United Kingdom, it can happen in Australia, other countries around the world that don't have Lone Star Tick. Um, and so sensitization can occur through a variety of parasite exposures with ticks having the best evidence. Uh, one article that was recently published was uh, that there are some worms, actually, um, Ascaris lumbricoides, that contain alpha-gal as well. And so it's possible other parasites beyond ticks um, might uh, play a role. And my colleagues at uh, University of Virginia have also proposed that maybe chigger bites contribute as well. Um, so it could be more than just ticks, but definitely have good data to support now that uh, ticks play a role in sensitization. All right. Uh, do we have any sense of how prevalent alpha-gal syndrome is today and whether it's increasing or decreasing or staying the same? Yeah, so, uh, you know, media always likes to popularize things, and so you would think this is skyrocketing, um, but, uh, you know, there are some caveats there. I would say yes, um, you know, uh, it seems to be increasing, and we'll get into why. There are a number of factors there. Uh, you know, recently, uh, the CDC published some data on the geographic distribution of alpha-gal based on laboratory testing, mm -hmm. and uh, you had hundreds of thousands of lab tests run, um, which uh, equiv is equivalent to hundreds of thousands of patients being tested although you get multiple tests in the same patient sometimes. And what they found is 30% of tests were positive. 
Now, we don't know the clinical history of these patients, so you can't diagnose someone with an allergy just based on testing alone, right? Any allergist knows sensitization doesn't always equal clinical allergy, uh, but it does seem to be increasing. And then uh, my colleagues at University of North Carolina did an excellent case control study where they looked at patients with alpha-gal syndrome in an allergy clinic, and then they looked at folks in a general internal medicine clinic without alpha-gal, and in their controls, people that didn't have the clinical syndrome, there was about a 30% uh, you know, alpha-gal IgE detected. And so I would say that there is a pretty high rate of sensitization in tick endemic areas. All right. So, and you, you teased out something really important, which we're going to dive into when we talk about diagnostic testing. But of, of those 30% that have an elevated IgE or, you know, even with the case controls, what about just like in the general population? Do we know, because um, you're, not, you're not describing 30% of everybody living in certain parts of the United States, but do, do we actually have a sense of, you know, actual prevalence data? No, this is an area that we need a, a lot more research and study on. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the best data is from people that suspected in endemic areas, right? But, you know, if you live in Seattle, what's the chance you're going to have alpha-gal syndrome? Probably way less than 30%, right? Um, but people travel, they have different hobbies and activities, and we can get into some of the risk factors for what uh, correlates with a higher likelihood of sensitization. Uh, but, you know, we need more data to determine the true prevalence. Oh, boy. So it's not like Vegas, right? So what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Like you said, if you travel to certain areas, it can come home with you. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. All right. Uh, well, when AlphaGal was was first discovered, it appeared really, and this is what I was taught, uh, you know, whatever, 10, 15 years ago, uh, it mainly affected people in the mid-Atlantic and southern United States. Has this distribution changed in the past 15 years? And if so, how? Definitely. Um, and I think there are two factors to consider here. Um, one is, you know, factors that affect the tick species, um, you know, the lone star tick, because we think that's the primary way in which people get sensitized, at least in this country. Um, and then also kind of increased recognition and testing and people traveling. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is kind of tick-related factors and host-related factors. And so uh, with global warming and deer migration, um, and deers are a vector for the tick species, they feed off the deer and often follow the deer. Uh, you know, you see the increase in Lone Star Tick in areas that previously wasn't present. Um, in fact, in Michigan, you know, where I did my fellowship, uh, tick bites from the Lone Star Tick are now the third most common reported tick bite. It was much lower previously. And now there are even some reports of the Lone Star Tick going all the way into Canada. Um, so they are moving north and they are moving more west. Um, but uh, the predominant areas are still the southeast, although more and more cases are being reported in the Midwest and more in the northeast now as well, too. Wow. Have you diagnosed anybody in your area, like you yourself? No, not yet. I've been at UW for a year and a half, and I'm still waiting for that first alpha-gal case here. Okay. So really, this is like a, a deer story from what you're describing. It's fascinating, all the layers to this. Absolutely. And I think um, there are some really interesting um, factors there. Uh, you know, we think about uh, why do these ticks, um, you know, sensitize you to alpha-gal, and one hypothesis is molecular mimicry. So these ticks want to survive more than just in humans, right? Um, They feed off of other animals. And in animals that have alpha-gal, by expressing alpha-gal, you can trick their immune system into not responding and saying, oh, this is normal. We've seen alpha-gal before. But when you get to humans, you know, we don't normally express alpha-gal. And the body all of a sudden is like, what's this? This shouldn't be here. Um, So I think there are a lot of parallels with understanding the tick's behavior in regard to the deer and then how it uh, impacts us as humans. 
Uh, and then how climate and just the, our, the way our human beings interact with the world that we live in is impacting so many different levels of this. And this is kind of one of those you know, side products. It's fascinating. Well, I think this has been a great sort of background so far. Uh, so now I'd love to have you spend some, some time just describing how alpha-gal syndrome presents clinically. So what, what, how do we know that somebody has this? What are the symptoms that they experience? So you often experience symptoms of IgE-mediated allergies, so things like itching, hives, difficulty breathing, wheezing, cough. So a lot of things you see with other allergies, but the kicker here is it's a delayed reaction after the consumption of mammalian meat. And so classically, it's between two to six hours after ingestion of, say, red meat, like uh, beef, for example, or venison or lamb. And then you have onset of these symptoms. And many patients have cutaneous and respiratory symptoms um, and multi-organ involvement, hence the diagnosis of anaphylaxis. Uh, but a small subset of patients can have uh, more nonspecific symptoms like gastrointestinal symptoms, which, um, as you know, can be sometimes hard diagnose as an allergy because it's rare for an allergy just to present with gastrointestinal symptoms. So it sounds like you can have this acute onset presentation, but it's delayed after eating mammalian meat. Can you have also more, have more of like a subtle chronic presentation? Is that what you're alluding to with the gastrointestinal symptoms? Yeah. So, you know, there are studies that look at delay in diagnosis for alpha-gal, and it can take up to seven years to diagnose a patient after onset of symptoms. And so there are a small subset of folks out there, and I say small because the data we have so far suggests that, you know, it's less than 1% to 2% of people that present with isolated gastrointestinal symptoms. They get diagnosed with things like irritable bowel syndrome, um, chronic abdominal pain, um, and it's not until somebody, you know, thinks, oh, is this related to red meat? This seems to occur more with ingestion of meat. They live in an endemic area with the ticks present. Let's check an Ig to alpha-gal that you might consider making this diagnosis. Okay. Now, traditional food allergy reactions often occur within minutes of eating a food and rarely longer than two to three hours later. So why does it take so long for reactions to alpha-gal to manifest compared to the traditional food allergy reactions? I think, you know, the gut is an amazing place. There's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, and, you know, you have breakdown of proteins, um, you have accessing of different molecules, digestion and absorption takes time as well. And so, you know, alpha-gal, as we talked about earlier, is a carbohydrate, right? Um, but when you ingest meat, there's a lot of other things in there. It takes time for the body to break it down and digest it. And then we think um, the alpha-gal that binds lipids and then crosses the intestinal barrier and then is exposed to the immune system deeper within the body and then potentially systemically with basophils and circulating blood, that uh, is what leads to the allergic reaction. So it takes time to digest the meat and for the immune system to access it in a form which it can then recognize and have a immune response to. We see similar things in other types of food allergy as well. As you're probably familiar with, you know, you've done work on delayed reactions to baked egg and baked milk. Uh, you have this concept of a food matrix, right? Um, and that food allergy where there's wheat and other things around the egg or milk and the muffin, and it takes time to digest that and break that down and access the relevant portions that the immune system can react to. That's so interesting. You know, we, we've also learned from traditional IgE-mediated food allergy that severity of reaction can change based upon the amount that's ingested or other cofactors such as intense exercise during the time of ingestion, sleep deprivation, febrile illness, stressors, things like that. Do we have any idea if that applies to alpha-gal as well, or is it too soon to know? Absolutely. Um, so some of this work uh, is done out of Europe and other countries because uh, they consume other animal intestines there more frequently than we do here in the United States. 
Um, and what has been shown is pork kidney actually contains a very high concentration of alpha-gal, and those reactions can be a more immediate, so less than two hours after ingestion, because you just have such a high burden of alpha-gal. Um, so the amount makes a difference there. And then there are case reports uh, that have shown with cofactors that some of these reactions can occur before that two-hour mark as well. Uh, so cofactors and the amount of alpha-gal ingested definitely play a role. And I'm sorry, did you say that other countries ingest more animal intestines than we do in the United States? Is it, is it, That's those correct. That used? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, have you ever had pork kidney yourself? No, I'm actually a vegetarian, which is yep. why I think it's also kind of funny that I've developed expertise in this area. <laughs> well, you mentioned the the delay in um, diagnosis up to seven years for for most folks, and you know it's it's unique presentation. Um, what advice do you have for clinicians to help maintain a higher index of suspicion? I think that uh, you know there are a number of factors to consider here. One is you know do you live in an area where the Lone Star Tick is present? You know that's a big one, right? That should raise your suspicion. Um, you know, taking a detailed dietary history um, and looking at uh, you know not just the meal immediately prior to the reaction, but during that day, a few hours earlier as well. Um, and then asking specifically about uh, mammalian meat products, beef, lamb, venison, pork, that sort of thing, because um, chicken and fish, you know, do not trigger this. They don't contain alpha gal. Um, although you have the potential for some, you know, cross-exposure, cross-contamination, which we can get into later. Uh, but, uh, you know, taking a detailed history, um, as you should with any condition, and then thinking about geographically where you are, where's the patient, taking a travel history. Those would be the things I'd focus on. And then based on that, you could consider, you know, taking the next step and doing testing, which is most commonly a blood test specific IgE to alpha gal. Yeah, tell us more about that. So what diagnostic tests should we be using to clarify the diagnosis who presents with the clinical history suggested for this condition? And then also, which ones should we not be using as well? Absolutely. So traditionally, um, you and I know that we use skin prick testing to diagnose a lot of allergies, um, for better or for worse. And so, uh, you know, the traditional meat extracts that are used for skin prick testing, so like, you know, beef, for example, pork, they have very poor sensitivity for alpha-gal. So you're likely going to miss it if you just rely on skin test meats. Uh, but the blood test, the specific IgE to alpha-gal, which is commercially available, um, is much more sensitive for detecting alpha-gal. And this is another, I think, unique aspect of uh, the alpha-gal story in that when this was first described, and even today, we're still using the ratio of specific IgE to alpha-gal, the total IgE. So those would be the two things that I'd always get. If you order a panel, they often come together. But if you're ordering individually, don't forget to order the total IgE. And the reason for that is, is we find if that ratio is greater than 2%, um, that there's a 95% probability that when you're exposed to an alpha-gal-containing meat that you'll have an allergic reaction. It's not 100%. You know, clinical history is uh, still paramount and food challenge remains the gold standard as is the case for many other food allergies. But I would say total IgE and specific IgE are probably the two things to order and definitely look at the ratio. And that's a little different than the traditional food allergy as with most things with this condition. So what's what's important to know about the ratio of that? Are there, are there a lot of like false positives with the alpha-gal specific IgE or can people have elevated total IgE for other reasons? Tell us a little bit more about that. Absolutely, so elevated total IgE can occur in a variety of conditions. Um, and uh, the concern has always been if you have a very high total IgE, maybe you can get weak binding enough for a lab assay to give you a positive result um, that is not clinically significant. Um, and so you want to use the ratio to 
as one of the variables to you know help you determine how likely do I think this patient has the allergy. And uh, you know when you look at data from outside the United States and within the United States as well, uh, you know combining the ratio gives you a little bit better confidence that this is significant. You know our assays are getting more and more sensitive; they're detecting down to 0.1 now. Um, and uh, the research hasn't completely caught up. There are a lot of cases where that 0.1 to 0.34 range, we don't know the significance of that. And so if you have low-level positivity, you should interpret that with caution, rely on your clinical history. And I do think in those cases, getting a total IG is helpful because if your total IG is very low, then even a small amount of alpha-gal IG detected could be significant. Mm, okay. Uh, you know, we've learned a lot about um, aeroallergens having cross-sensitization with some of the food antigens that we test for. With, you know, obviously with birch tree pollen, uh, there's a high degree of sensitization for those who have peanut allergy and, and vice versa. Do we, have we found that with specific aeroallergens or other food allergens in regards to alpha-gal having, you know, false positive binding and things like that? Absolutely. Um, so, you know, gelatin is a great example of this. Um, so, you know, if you have a positive alpha-gal IgE, most of the patients will have a positive gelatin IgE, but many of them will tolerate gelatin-containing products. Um, and so, you know, this is something that is always a concern for alpha-gal patients. As we focused a lot on, you know, meat so far in our discussion, but there are other animal-derived products like dairy, for example, um, and then also gelatin being used in medical-grade products that, you know, patients have concerns about having reactions to. And so you can get positivity um, with these other things when you test in alpha-gal patients, assuming they have a positive IgE. But again, you got to go back to your clinical history. And this is where I think um, we've learned a lot from uh, everything that's happened with the COVID vaccines and the concern about excipient allergies. Um, you know, I saw recently you uh, posted on your social media page, you know, wonderful clinical commentary review on excipient allergy, really highlighting that many of these excipients contain such little protein in the case of uh, alpha-gal, such little carbohydrate, um, that it's likely clinically insignificant and that patients with these allergies can often tolerate these products. Mm -hmm. No, it's an excellent point. Um, okay. Well, I think that was a great, uh, just walking us through the, the best way to sort of diagnose these patients and what tests to use and avoid and things like that. So here I have two important questions for you. Does everybody with alpha-gal recall being bitten by a tick? And on the flip side, does everybody bitten by a Lone Star tick develop alpha-gal? Great question. Um, so, you know, there's still a lot here we don't know. Um, but in general, patients that have clinical alpha-gal syndrome do recall being bitten by a tick and often more than once. They often recall the tick bite being very itchy. I'm again going to refer back to that case control study done out of the University of North Carolina. In that study, patients with clinical alpha-gal syndrome um, recalled at least four tick bites, if not more. Um, and uh, they recalled them likely because they were red and itchy. Uh, but you can't rely on the number of tick bites to distinguish between folks that are sensitized versus folks that have the clinical syndrome. Again, you have to go to the symptoms and the clinical history, because if you compare in the control group, uh, patients that had positive IgE without the syndrome and folks that did not, those patients also recall being bit by ticks more frequently. Other factors were living, you know, near the woods, which kind of makes sense, right? Woods, deer, and the ticks on the deer. Um, and then spending a lot of time outdoors. Again, you're increasing the likelihood you're going to bite the more time you spend outdoors. Uh, and so I would say that uh, there is a correlation, but I can't give you a hard cutoff for like a uh, you know, it's these many bikes to develop the syndrome versus, you know, just sensitization versus, you know, control group. I mean, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a history of tick bite is almost irrelevant when trying to establish a diagnosis of alpha-gal syndrome. Yeah, so you definitely can diagnose patients that, uh, you know, have been 
not bitten by a tick or don't recall being bitten by a tick. Um, you know, patients just like us are not always the best historians, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, you definitely can have the syndrome without recalling a bite. Um, but I do think it's still important to ask because it gives you an idea about, you know, what is the patient doing? Um, and, you know, do they have that local reaction? One uh, proposal for the conversion between sensitization to clinical allergy is that the folks that have stronger local reactions to the tick bite, so more redness, itching, and swelling at the bite site, maybe the ones where you're getting conversion to IgE and then um, potentially have a higher likelihood of developing the syndrome. Now, I know ticks can kind of migrate. Is it is it typically like, will the ticks stay attached for a period of time while they're actually developing the redness and itching, or is it just so highly variable? Yeah, so ticks often can become embedded um, into the skin. And, you know, I've had to, in my internal medicine clinic as a resident, actually had to remove ticks from patients. Um, and so definitely they can stay there for a while. I think what's interesting here is that um, the redness and itching often leads you to identify the tick more quickly and get it off of you before it's become embedded. Um, okay. And so given the fact that a lot of these patients recall redness and itching and removing the tick, um, I would say that uh, even without becoming embedded, you know, if it's bitten you and there's some saliva exposure, you know, you've had the, the opportunity there to be exposed to alpha-gal. And uh, what is also interesting is this might be actually protective for infectious diseases. So they did a study with uh, Lyme disease and looked at folks that, you know, recall having itchiness at their tick bite site and removing the tick. Those patients were less likely to contract Lyme disease. Uh, and so there might be a protective aspect to this as well. Oh, boy, I think you just described the next TikTok phenomenon of people intentionally <laughs> getting bitten by Lone Star ticks to prevent Lyme disease. Oh, boy. Um, you know, I never I never uh, want to miss the opportunity to offer good education. So can you please clarify for everybody listening, what is the proper way to remove a tick if you find one on your skin? Well, um, I think that it depends on if the tick is embedded or not. Often you want to use a, a tweezer. A tweezer can be used to remove the tick, um, but if you have difficulty removing the tick yourself, this is a great opportunity to follow up with your primary care doctor. Uh, and so I would say that you want to do a thorough skin exam, so um, which can be sensitive, especially you know if you're examining um, a lot of different areas of the body. So often a friend or family member or your physician, someone you trust, can do a full thorough skin exam to make sure it's you know not just one tick or multiple ticks. And then you want to use a tweezer to remove the tick and uh, then uh, dispose of it um, often. I mean, I use a little plastic container in clinic, but I mean, you can throw it in the trash, I guess. And so that's uh, what I would suggest would be the, the simplest way to, to remove the tick. And I did not hear you state to take a lit match and burn the tick off the skin. That's correct. I would not recommend that High, higher likelihood of injury. Okay. All right. Just wanted to clarify. Thank you. Well, you know, I've received this question myself and I would love to hear your answer to it. Shouldn't we just just test everybody living in these endemic areas or has had a previous tick bite just to be sure, make sure they don't have, you know, hidden alpha-gal syndrome? That's a great question. Um, and I would say that if anything from the CDC data and the case control study that was done at uh, UNC, we see that there are a lot of people that are living their lives normally um, with positive IgE to alpha-gal. Um, and I think there are um, negative consequences to making a, an incorrect diagnosis. And we see this in young children with food allergy, right? Unnecessary avoidance, increased anxiety, um, even carrying an EpiPen if uh, you're not sure if you need it or are worried about using it. That can negatively impact your quality of life. So even an EpiPen prescription in some cases is not benign. Um, and so I think it creates a lot of unnecessary anxiety. 
Um, I think that, you know, if you have symptoms and you live in an endemic area, you should see a board certified allergist and be properly evaluated. I think if you were to test everybody, you're going to create a population that um, is unnecessarily anxious and scared um, to go out and eat, to receive medical products. Um, it can lead to delay in care. And so, because there are a lot of things like heart valves, for example, and other medical products that potentially contain alpha-gal. And so I think it would have a lot of negative consequences. Okay. No, I appreciate that. You're right. So these are not screening tests. I want to make sure we're very clear for everybody listening. Absolutely. Now, for those individuals mm -hmm. who are unfortunate enough to be bitten by a Lone Star Tick and they go on to develop IgE antibodies towards alpha-gal and, and even the full-blown clinical syndrome, what's the typical time frame between the tick bite and then when they experience their first reaction after eating red meat? That's a great question. Again, this is an area where we need more data. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, you have a seven-year delay in diagnosis after onset of symptoms. And so sometimes it can be hard to distinguish when they present to you so late, you know, when was the sentinel tick bite and when was the exact onset of symptoms after that. Um, there are some case reports that suggest it can be, you know, weeks to months, um, but it can also sometimes be years. Um, and again, we need more data in this area. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's the best approach towards management of alpha-gal syndrome? You know, like any food allergy, avoidance is key. Um, and the mainstay of avoidance is avoiding mammalian-derived meats. So you don't need to avoid poultry or fish, for example. Uh, and then also carrying an epinephrine auto-injector. Because, uh, you know, there is a risk of anaphylaxis. Many of these patients have multi-organ involvement, like skin and gastrointestinal symptoms, when epinephrine should be administered. And so avoidance and prescription of an EpiPen are paramount. Okay. Uh, you know, this... Uh brings to mind a professional football player who I won't name, uh, but famously, I think this was six or seven years ago, had anaphylaxis on the way to a game and wasn't able to play that, that next day because they had shellfish allergy and they just couldn't help themselves. And they recorded as saying, you know, sometimes I just can't help myself because I love the taste and I just, you know, I deal with it. Uh, I get an upset stomach and it's not going to progress or make my throat swell shut. Are there people with alpha-gal that can have just a little bit of steak and, you know, kind of deal with it? Or do we generally recommend don't go there? Uh, so, you know, again, area where we need more research, but I think um, it's really important to recognize that food allergy is not a one-size-fits-all approach anymore. Um, and uh, we can get into the concept of thresholds and reactivity and severity, um, but every patient is unique. Some patients are more sensitive, some are less. Um, in the case of alpha-gal, for example, you have some folks that are highly sensitive and will react to things like dairy, which do contain some alpha-gal. And then you have some patients that are only slightly sensitive and that if you really well cook a steak, they might be able to tolerate it. So that has been reported in the literature. The problem is, is you can't predict that other than off of clinical history based on any of the testing that we have. Um, but I would say like any shared decision, you should discuss this with your patient, discuss the potential risks. And uh, you know, if they are able to tolerate small amounts, you could consider continuing that. Um, but they should always have their epinephrine auto-injector available. And so I think this is an area where there's a role for shared decision-making. Um, and, uh, you know, we used to think of food allergy as definitely an anaphylactic for all patients. And I think in some ways we do a disservice to our patients by thinking of it that way, because you generate a lot of fear and anxiety surrounding the diagnosis. I do think there is a, such a thing as mild food allergy. We just need to get better at diagnosing and managing that as a specialty uh, so we can better guide our patients and prevent unnecessary avoidance, fear, and anxiety. Boy, and with your calming demeanor, I, I can only, uh, I, I'm sure that your patients very much appreciate having that shared decision-making conversation with you. Now, um, we know that we can desensitize to other food allergens, such as peanuts, uh, with oral immunotherapy. Um, is there a way to desensitize for alpha-gal as well? 
So actually, there is a report in the literature that was just published. Um, so desensitization to red meat um, in the setting of Alpha-Gal has been attempted. Um, and the, there is a case series that suggests it's successful in some patients. Um, as you're well aware, you know, oral immunotherapy food desensitization has risks, um, including risk of side effects, so allergic reaction, which can be as severe as anaphylaxis. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't have an FDA-approved product like we do for peanut. Uh, you know, peanut has palforzia. We don't have that um, for other foods, including red meat. And the problem here is how do you control for dosing and how much alpha-gal is represented in the meat? What protocol do you follow? And then you have to counsel on cofactors and other potential risks. Um, so it can have a big impact on quality of life, but it has been attempted and it has been successful in a small group of patients. So it's just the area we need more data and more study. Is this something that people should start doing on their own? Absolutely not. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, there are a lot of risks involved with this. Um, and you want to make sure you're appropriately counseled of all the information before you make a decision. Uh, you know, food oral immunotherapy is often time intensive. You're having, you know, visits with your doctor every two weeks. Um, you know, they're measuring your dose. They're having you follow a protocol. They're reassessing how you're doing and giving you guidance at every visit. Um, so you definitely want to do this under the supervision of a board-certified allergist. Okay. What's the prognosis for somebody who, who develops alpha-gal syndrome? Can this resolve over time and go away? Uh, and if so, how do we determine when it's, when it's gone? Great question. Um, so this can go away over time, um, and it goes back to the ticks. Uh, so if you continue to get tick bites, your IgE will remain elevated or even increase further. Um, but if you're able to avoid ticks, uh, you, the IgE tends to decline over time. Every patient is different. Some people that have lower levels in the beginning might decline faster. Some people with very high levels may take longer. Um, generally, I would recommend checking an IgE once a year uh, and uh, following that trend. If it becomes negative and the patient is able to avoid uh, tick bites, then I would consider discussing with them whether you should do a food challenge in clinic to determine if they're still sensitive or not. And, you know, even with a negative test, you know, there still is a risk of, uh, you know, having allergy. No test is 100%, right? And so I think uh, doing it in a safe setting with the appropriate emergency response team and resources available uh, is very important. So you can lose this over time, and that, that's why there's value in rechecking the level. That's interesting. I, I was kind of expecting you to mention something about, like, if you continue to eat red meat or experience reactions. Does that seem to prolong this, do we know? That's a great question. Uh, and, you know, I am not 100% sure if we know the answer to that question or not. We definitely have data showing that with tick bites, the IgE goes up and avoidance of tick bites, it comes down. I suspect because most patients are counseled to avoid red meat strictly after getting this diagnosis, that there are very few that will go out and continue to challenge themselves and react. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you you mentioned a couple of times so far about other potential sources of alpha-gal, and I use that word potential in italics for those who can't uh, determine that while listening. Um, so you mentioned dairy, you mentioned some medications that contain gelatin. Walk us through, you know, the story behind that. Does everybody with alpha-gal stand the same risk of, you know, experiencing reactions, or how should we counsel patients in regards to those types of exposures? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so there are a lot of animal-derived products that are used in uh, medications um, and also in other things that are given to you in the hospital when you're admitted, for example, plasma expanders. So there's a product called Gelafundin, which is more commonly used um, in Europe and is in the United States. Um, you know, this is used as a plasma expander, so infused through your veins. Um, and it has, you know, a significant amount of alpha-gal in it. 
Um, and patients with the Opergel syndrome can definitely anaphylax on exposure to this product. Uh, and then you have things like stearic acid, which are animal-derived, have the potential to contain alpha-gal and are found in a lot of the over-counter supplements, like magnesium supplementation, for example. Um, and most patients tolerate these products just fine, although there are rare case reports of patients reacting. And so it goes back to how much of it is in the product and what's the route of exposure. Often small amounts and things that are taken orally tend to be tolerated by many patients, whereas things that are given intravenously or by injection, especially if they have a high concentration of alpha-gal, like the gelifundin, for example, have a very high risk of causing reaction. Is this a counseling that should take place at the time of diagnosis, or do we wait until somebody experiences a suspected reaction to a medication, or how should we you know, best approach this? I think it is important to discuss um, with the patients at time of diagnosis, because as you know, you know, the internet is full of a lot of information, good and bad. Um, and so patients will read a variety of things online. Um, and uh, this is something that I think is great to discuss with the patient at diagnosis, um, to go over what are the potential risks. You always want to make sure that they have, if they have concerns, you're available to discuss with them and talk with them. Um, this is one thing that I actually borrowed from your book in that, you know, if they quote a reference about potential severe reactions or reacting to specific products, have them come in and bring the reference so you can review it with them and go through, you know, the strengths or weaknesses of that data. No, I love it. Are, are you suggesting that not everything we read on the internet is true? That is correct. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll get back to that in a second. But before then, I, I heard you give an outstanding presentation on this topic at a regional allergy society meeting that we attended together uh, just a few months ago. And you took the audience on this wild sidebar that seemingly didn't make any sense at the time. And you caught my attention. I said, where is he going with this? Uh, but wow, you brought it back around beautifully. So if I may, I'd love for our listeners to go on that similar detour. And with that, what is CROFAB, and why is that relevant to a discussion about alpha-gal syndrome? Yeah, uh, thank you for bringing that up. Um, so this is actually a case that I was part of at uh, the University of Virginia um, as a resident. Uh, and so we had a patient that received CROFAB. It's a snake antivenom. They had bitten by a snake and had envenomation of the bite. And uh, when the patient was administered CROFAB, they developed acute onset urticaria. And so you got to take a deep dive into, you know, what is CROFAB. Um, so it is a anti-venom that's produced by immunizing horses and sheep. Uh, and why is that important? Those are mammals that contain alpha-gal. Um, and so this uh, antibody that is derived um, from these animals contains some alpha-gal. And so you have the potential for allergic reaction to these anti-venoms when administered to a patient that has the clinical alpha-gal syndrome. And so this is another way in which, you know, alpha-gal can sneak its way into medical products and cause potential issues. No, I, I love that story. It's so unique and fascinating. It just dives again into the level upon level um, that we see with this. Uh, okay, so what do you think is the biggest unanswered question surrounding alpha-gal syndrome at this time? I think the biggest question is, is how do we individualize management for patients? Uh, and I think that's kind of a big question for food allergy in general. Uh, and I think uh, the reason that's the biggest question is for so long, as we learn more about this syndrome, our guidance has always been, you know, to avoid things that contain alpha-gal, predominantly red meat. And if patients have reactions to dairy, you know, also recommending dairy avoidance. And I think we need... Um, better ways to determine, you know, who's at higher risk versus lower risk. 
and uh, how we can individualize the management for what does a patient truly need to avoid versus not. And then, you know, also discussing, you know, other therapy options. You know, I hope we get more data on the oral immunotherapy desensitization for alpha-gal because uh, I think that that is a great option to offer patients that want to do something more than just avoidance. Of course, like any therapy, there's risks there. And, you know, as your board-certified allergist, uh, you, you should discuss that, you know, with your patients. But I think how do we individualize management is the biggest question for me. Mm, okay. And what are some of the most common mistakes that you see regarding the diagnosis or management of alpha-gal syndrome or both? I think uh, some of the biggest pitfalls that I see is just folks not being aware of it. Um, I'm going to refer back again to those uh, CDC reports um, and uh, the rest of the medical literature looking at when you survey providers about, uh, you know, their comfort or awareness of the syndrome is pretty low, um, especially outside of endemic areas. Uh, and it can be as low as, you know, 20, 30 percent of folks that feel, you know, comfortable diagnosing and treating this condition. And I think uh, we either need to improve um, our referral process uh, to, you know, allergists um, when there's a suspicion for the alpha-gal syndrome, or we need to empower folks outside of our specialty um, to consider this diagnosis in certain situations because, you know, other physicians are capable of ordering a blood test, at least, um, if a clinical history fits. Um, and that can be helpful because the reality is, is there's no way that um, allergists can manage this on their own. There are too many patients um, that would be seeking evaluation, and as the prevalence of this potentially increases, you're going to have a larger population to take care of, especially if the ticks and deer keep moving everywhere. Um, I think of this in the way that I think of penicillin allergy. How can we empower others to help us manage this condition better? Um, and I think uh, we're already seeing this in our gastrointestinal um, colleagues, the GI docs. They've started publishing guidelines on when they recommend testing for this and referring to an allergist. Um, and I think uh, just making people aware um, about, you know, how this can manifest in their patients, that there is testing that can be considered and that they should consider referral to an allergist if they have a high suspicion for this are all things that uh, we can do better as a specialty. Okay. Well, as you alluded to just a few moments ago, we live in a world of misinformation and Dr. Google. What are some of the biggest pieces of just plain bad information that you've encountered online surrounding AlphaGal? And can you set the record straight for us? Absolutely. Um, so I have seen a lot of misinformation about things you can react to. Um, there are a lot of folks that they see a case report about a supplement or product that a patient reacted to. They go down the rabbit hole trying to figure out what's the ingredient, and then they're like, okay, I need to avoid everything that contains this. Um, and so a lot of what I see with the alpha-gal syndrome is unnecessary avoidance. A good example of this is heparin, um, you know, which is a porcine-derived. And, uh, you know, the majority of alpha-gal patients tolerate heparin just fine. Um, but my colleagues at UVA will tell you that they get consulted about this all the time when a patient gets admitted to the hospital. They have a concern um, or even a diagnosis of alpha-gal syndrome about their ability to tolerate heparin. Um, but we give heparin to patients that are hospitalized all the time, even those with alpha-gal, and the vast majority of them tolerate it with no issue. Um, so the biggest misinformation I see online is just the degree of avoidance that folks recommend um, based on their personal experience or what they read or their own fear and anxiety surrounding the topic. Uh, anecdotes are not evidence, correct? Correct. Anecdotes are not evidence. 100% agree. <laughs> Dr. Coker, this has been so beneficial and helpful. This You provided us a wealth of information. I think this was basically a mini primer on alpha-gal syndrome. Did we miss anything? 
No, I think we covered a lot. Um, it's been a privilege to be on the podcast and chat with you today. Uh, you know, let me know how I can help in the future. Oh, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.